Well, Merry Christmas. Jesus is the reason for the season. Peace on earth and goodwill to men. As Christians, we can say amen to these because they are true. But let's be honest, they are cliches. They are overused and quite often improperly so. The reality is that Christmas itself has become somewhat of a cliché, perhaps especially within the church. This is true in large part because of all the little clichés we say about Christmas. And this morning I want to talk about some of these Christian clichés of Christmas. And I do this to not be one of those guys. And every time someone says something witty or gives an illustration, there's someone who picks it apart even though what they're saying has nothing to do with what was originally said. I'm not trying to do that. I don't want to be argumentative. I don't want to prove some point that is diminishing the truth behind these cliches. Indeed, all of the cliches I will mention this morning are theologically accurate. These cliches are around for a reason, and that is because each one of them does have a profound truth behind them. In fact, a cliché is defined as, and I quote, a trite, stereotyped expression, a sentence or phrase usually expressing a popular or common thought or idea that has lost its originality, ingenuity, and impact by long overuse. We understand this with things that we say all the time. Pretty soon, when we first started saying them, perhaps when you first were married and you said, I love you, before you hung up on the phone, now you're 20, 30 years in and you just say it because it's what you say. By the very definition, one of the problems with Christian cliches is that we no longer think about them. We say them, perhaps we're trying to make some sort of small point but we don't truly think about what they mean. And I want to remind you this morning of the significance of these sayings, but I want to help you understand so much more behind every word. Because when it comes to Christianity and Christmas, we have a particular and special enjoyment of this celebration. But this celebration is one that should last all year, and it is a celebration that should be practiced biblically. So let me talk about some of these Christian cliches of Christmas. The first is this, Jesus is the reason for the season. We say this because it is true. But there are a lot of things that are true but don't make their way into the mainstream as a saying that is often repeated. So why this one? Why has the phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season, become such a cliché? I believe it's because the Christmas season is one of the most significant and powerful times of the year in terms of the economy, family, and religion. But it has lost its way. People have forgotten the focus. In fact, tomorrow, millions will celebrate Christmas without even mentioning Jesus some of them not even knowing that Jesus has anything to do with this. 
This largely began with good intentions in the early 19th century. And over the past 200 years, the commercialization of Christmas has grown. It was during the early 19th century that this all started with an emphasis in the Church of England. They wanted to make Christmas about Christians helping the poor. Think about that. As Christians, the Christmas season is synonymous with being kind, charity, helping the poor. But that's not from the Bible. In fact, much of what we do this Christmas season is not in the Bible. It was, in fact, 200 years ago that the Church of England said, if we're going to celebrate the birth of Christ, why not make it a time when Christians especially are charitable to the poor? At that same time, in the early 19th century, you had influential authors such as Charles Dickens and Washington Irving, who in their very popular writings about Christmas emphasized that Christmas was to be about family, children, gift-giving, and Santa Claus. And so understand it was these authors that largely shaped what we understand Christmas to be today, including Santa Claus, or for Dickens, Father Christmas. Speaking of Dickens, you have, of course, the classic literary antagonist, Ebenezer Scrooge. The word Scrooge becoming a normal word in English, further emphasizing what Christmas should be because of what Scrooge's nature was not. Today, the actual celebration of Christmas in the U.S. and around the world is a combination of various cultural traditions, pop culture, and advertising campaigns. The iconic Coca-Cola ads with Santa Claus drinking a bottle of Coke is a great example of all three. An ad campaign, by the way, that began in the 1920s, and although Santa was not invented by Coca-Cola or its advertising agency, what you picture when you picture Santa Claus was largely shaped by Coca-Cola. And even with all the commercialization of Christmas, you can see the early focus on kindness and giving in a reflection of Jesus Christ that is celebrated through gift-giving and charity. We take pains to find the right gift to make others happy. We sing to bring cheer to those who see and hear. We decorate our homes to make people happy. And you can see how there is still today a connection to the gift of Jesus Christ and the idea of gifting and kindness. We spend time with families. We have church Christmas parties. We put up nativity scenes. We agonize over just the right Bible verse to print on the back of our Christmas cards. We tend to give more. We tend to evangelize more, if only because the timing of the end of the fiscal year and the family gatherings give us greater opportunity to do so. It is the Christmas season. But even among Christians, we can easily get caught up in the cultural aspect of everything, the busyness that can take us away from fellowship at church, the obligatory gift-giving to family members, co-workers, and those in the service industry, or mail carriers, or hairdressers, and what have you. 
Some of you are thinking right now, oh, I was supposed to give a Christmas gift to my mailman? <laughs> yes. Perhaps it is frustration with our own distractions that we cry out to remind ourselves Jesus is the reason for the season. It is a great and powerful reminder that can center us and give us greater focus. And let's be honest, it helps that it rhymes and is fun to say. Christ is the reason for the day, just doesn't quite have the ring, same ring to it. Jesus is the reason for the holiday. Jesus is the reason for the season. We like saying it. It's witty. It's clever. It's Christian. But we must remember that Christmas is about Christ. And that cliche, Jesus is the reason for the season, is very important this time of year. We must, of course, be careful that we don't say it in anger, condescendingly, or in judgment of the world around us, because if you indeed worship the Christ of Christmas, then you know that it is because of His grace and not because you are better than any who do not worship Him. In other words, don't just say this to prove a point. I don't think anyone repents because they are angrily fighting over the last of a certain toy at Target. And someone walks by and says, Jesus is the reason for the season. Nobody hears you say, you know, it's Christmas, and says, oh, you're right, I should fall on my knees and repent and be baptized. We say this, but we need to be careful. We're not trying to hurt people or judge people or be petty. Now, to be fair, the saying is helpful in evangelizing. It is helpful in reminding even non-Christians that there is a gift that they can partake of that will be eternally better than anything under the tree. But for the Christian, we must be careful. Because Jesus isn't just the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason for everything. Colossians chapter 1, turn there with me. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 20. We will see all matters of the glory and power and even the creative work of God is in Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 13 through 20 say this, for He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, Jesus Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or Trump or Biden or Newsom or the mountains or the seas, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Jesus is the reason for everything. Verse 17, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place 
in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Him, Himself, His, everything is about Jesus Christ. And my friends, Colossians was not written as a Christmas celebration. It was, a writ- it was written as a reminder to Christians of the world and to the world itself of the power and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Yes, remind yourselves and remind others that Jesus is the reason for the season, but only as a starting point to tell them about creation, to tell them and yourselves about the gospel, the death, the wonderful plan of redemption, the coming again, the judgment, eternity, wrath, the binding of Satan himself. Jesus is the reason for everything. And when we unwrap those gifts, when we sing these songs, when we look at the decorations and ourselves decorate, remember that none of it ends next week when you take it all down. He is in you. He is for you. And more importantly, you are for Him. Jesus is a reason for everything. May I share with you another cliche that we tend to say during this time of year? Is that He came, speaking of His birth, to die. He came to die. Again, very true. In fact, the two most popular days for church attendance are based on these two facts. He came, Christmas, to die, Good Friday and Easter. Yes, He came to die. And He did so to pay the penalty for our sins. He knew this, and He even explained it Himself to His disciples. Listen to Matthew 16, 21, a record of Jesus' own words. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Two verses later, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came to die. There's a popular meme making its rounds on social media. It is a Christmas wreath cut down right through the center. On the left side, it is a proper Christmas wreath. Above it is the caption, this is the season. The other side of the circle is not a wreath, but a crown of thorns. The caption on that side reads, this is the reason. It's very powerful because He came to die for us. More to the point, as we celebrate the birth of baby Jesus, He was born so that He could die. We must remember this. We must rejoice in this. 
We must worship because of this. But the reason this is on my list is because he didn't just come to die. He came to live. Let me explain. He had to fulfill the law and the prophets. And that was not merely done by his death. He had to live a perfect life so that his death would have meaning and purpose. There was a reason for this. He could have been born. Joseph and Mary received the gifts, and one of the animals stomped him to death as a baby. That would not have been enough. He had to live the perfect life in our place. Matthew 5.17, he says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And what this means is that he came to fulfill all the thousands of years of prophecies and foreshadowing of his coming, but also to fulfill the moral requirements of the Old Testament law. In the Old Testament, you have ancient Jews bound by a law that was purposely made by God so difficult that the only way to fulfill them was through human perfection, in other words, impossible. The only way that Jesus' death had any significance or worth at all was if he died after living a completely sinless life life. If he had sinned, his death would have only paid the penalty for his own wrongdoing, not that of the world and any in the world who come to Christ. First Peter 2.22 says, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5, speaking of Jesus, in Him there is no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And speaking of fulfillment or fulfilling the Old Testament, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 say this, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. If you're not familiar, you did not hear me wrong. He did write, a lamb, as in the animal. This is a reference to the sacrifice required again of Old Testament Jews, especially the Passover lamb. And these animals were to be brought by the Jews to worship and sacrifice to their God. But they had to be perfect. And one of the jobs of the Levites was to examine that animal to make sure that it was without blemish. No rashes, no limp, no problems with its teeth, its eyes, its ears, no pus coming out of anywhere, no uh, misgrown fur, even if it's just a patch. It had to be perfect. 
Now, we know that animals have no morality. So, this is a reference, and it's very clear in the Old Testament, to physical perfection, what the farmer or the offer of the offering could see with his eyes. But we also understand that when it comes to man and Jesus Christ, being unblemished and spotless refers not to the physical, but to the moral. If you're a bit lost, allow me to put it all together for you. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4 say this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Everything that we believe as Christians... And if you are not a Christian here, we're so glad you're here. And your Christian spouse or friend or family member or coworker who brought you here this morning, what I'm about to explain is why they wanted you here. It is the gospel message. And it is the truth and the reality that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it including mankind. And just as if you were to create a business or a gadget, you, as the creator, decide what the purpose of that device is to be. And God's purpose and desire for mankind was that man would glorify Him and enjoy pleasing Him and in that, in return, receiving joy and pleasure with communion and fellowship and friendship with God. And there is a major problem that we all have, and that is called sin. You're familiar with the term. Let me give you a biblical, original, authentic definition of it. Sin is any violation of God's commands and character. So anything you do that goes against what God created man to do which again is moral perfection, not as defined by your feelings, not as defined by society, not even defined by American law, but by the creator of man and the one who gave man that law as a guideline for how we are to live. And all have fallen short. All have sinned. All have had a, a bout of impatience, of anger, of a white lie, whatever it may be. And if we were to count them all up, if we were honest, there'd be millions. And yet the Bible says only one is enough to break the law. And we get this. We don't, we don't get pulled over or we don't hear of someone getting arrested and they say, well, you, you broke some rules but not the law. It doesn't matter what they do. We use the term, he broke the law. He murdered someone. He broke the law. He drove too fast. He broke the law. Anything breaks the law. And God says, anything you do, it doesn't matter if it's a small lie or mass murder, it breaks his law. And unlike every government in the world, every infraction of the law is punished. That doesn't happen here because our government and the police are not all-knowing, but God is. And so it's not jail time. It's not the death penalty. That would be a blessing if that's all it were. 
But because he is God and the creator of all things, the punishment is hell. It is eternal damnation. And he would have been completely just to just close the book and end the story there. You guys messed up. Now face my justice. But he provided a way out. And that, my friends, is why, though they may not know it, the world celebrates December 25th. Because God sent his sacrifice. Now remember, in order for that sacrifice to actually have merit and take the place of all the sins that we have committed, that sacrifice had to be perfect. And God had to trust that however long he lived on earth, that there would be no sin whatsoever in that individual's life. There is no such man, so God sent himself. Jesus Christ was, did not come into existence when that baby was born. Jesus Christ is God, very God, and has existed from eternity past, took the form of a human being so that he could come and live and then die. And on the third day, showing that he was victorious over death and sin, being raised on the third day. One of my favorite verses in this whole context is Romans 3.26. He did this so that he could be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, his justice demanded wrath. But by sending his own son, God, very God, to die on the cross, he was the appeasement of that wrath as well. He was able to be just by punishing Christ and the justifier. Romans 10, 9 through 10 say this. Thousands of verses in the Bible. And if you don't know any of them, then this is the most important one. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And just like that, your eternity in hell is transferred to an eternity in heaven. Back to our cliches. This is why it is true, but for Christians not enough to understand that he came to die. He also came to live a perfect life in fulfillment of the law, and that perfect life became the perfect sacrifice. He came to die. I want to give you a third and final cliche to talk about this morning, and that is peace on earth and goodwill toward men. This comes straight from the Bible. Dennis read it for us earlier. After an angel appeared to the shepherds and announced the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, there suddenly appeared a multitude of angels who sang out in praise to God, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, 
peace among men. But there's a problem. Look around. We do not have world peace. In fact, it's still a pipe dream. During the American Civil War, the famed American poet Henry Longfellow wrote one of his best-known poems. In fact, it's considered the second most well-known poem from Longfellow, second only to his famous poem you probably remember from high school, Paul Revere's Ride. This poem is called Christmas Bells, and it goes like this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. The poem then takes a turn. And remember, this was written during the Civil War. And it was this war in which his son ran away to join the war and was shot in the, in the shoulder. And just picture the time and place. And they thought it would have been fatal. And so Longfellow had to go and pick up his son who had been shot in the Civil War in the shoulder and tried to deal with that just two years after Longfellow's wife had essentially burned to death after trying to seal an envelope with one of those old wax seals and the flaming wax fell on her dress and burned her alive. He continues, Then... From each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if, it was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Something many people don't know about Longfellow was that he was a devoted Christian. And he ends this poem with an understanding of the hope in Jesus Christ. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Amen. Longfellow greatly explains the tension in this cliché. On the one hand, you have peace on earth announced at Jesus' birth by his own emissaries, the angels. 
But you also have Christ's own words in Matthew 10.34 where He says, Do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Confusing, right? It's only confusing because I didn't read the entirety of what the angel said in Luke 2. Let me read it again without removing the ending. Luke 2.14 Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. The peace that is available because of Jesus is only for those who follow Him. To put it another way, the peace that is available because of Jesus is only available through Him. This peace is not world peace. It is a peace with God. Romans 5.1, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that this is speaking of an objective peace, as in the absence of war. But it is an individual peace in where the individual Christian is no longer at war with God, but because they have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, their sins are forgiven and covered, and that enmity with God is no longer. This is the peace that the Prince of Peace brings to the world at His birth. See, the Bible does also promise a peace that is related to that peace of mind or a feeling of being at peace, but that too ultimately is in Christ and is a result of being no longer at war with God. And just to be clear, The Bible says that anyone who is not a Christian is indeed at war with God. So when you hear the cliche, peace on earth and goodwill toward men, remember that this peace is not a world peace that exists today. It is a peace with God for those who accept God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this also means that there will one day be world peace but not until eternity when Christ returns and Christians will live in peace with each other and their God forever worshiping in glory. And we understand that the cliches of Christmas go far beyond these sayings. There are Christmas trees, there are stockings, there are candy canes, songs, there are lights. Every once in a while, someone tries to introduce something new, Some of them kind of stick, elf on the shelf. Others do not. Any of you still hanging an upside-down Christmas tree? But the classics remain because the reality of what Christmas is does not change. And although the world may be drifting further and further from the true meaning of Christmas, may we as followers of Jesus Christ think deeply and biblically, and worshipfully, as we hear the Christian cliches of Christmas and understand their full meaning and that there is so much more than what we say or read or hear on face value.
And so, my friends, on this Christmas Eve, may I close by reminding you that Jesus is the reason for the season. He came to die, peace on earth, and goodwill to men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we worship not a God of a limited one-day holiday, even if it is celebrated over a season. We worship a God that is behind and the for and is the reason for everything. May we as believers enjoy all that this season has to offer. May we enjoy the opening of stockings. May we enjoy the delight on friends' and children's faces as we see them opening up their presents tomorrow morning. May we enjoy the treats and the carols and the decorations. But may we truly understand and appreciate and enjoy all that you have done for us that in no way could not even begin to be encapsulated by one particular day. Help us, Lord, to worship you fully every moment of our lives. And for those this morning that you have sovereignly brought here who do not have a right relationship with you, may you change that this very day that they too may worship you fully. I pray these things in Jesus' name.